Uh, tonight we're going to begin a new series, and it's all about our church, mainly our church as a little C church, um, as in Providence Community Church. In our church, one of the ways that connects us to the big C church, the church universal, the church global, is our doctrinal statement is not a doctrinal statement it's an orthodox statement if you want to be a member of providence community church what do you have to believe you have to believe what one billion professing christians in this world believes and that is the apostles creed it's the bare minimum if you've got this if you can say amen to this then you're in regardless of all the peripheral things that divide us and make us upset on facebook the apostles creed is what unites us to the church of any denomination of any ethnicity, of any nation, Africa, South America, Central America, Australia, you name it. If we can say amen to the Apostles' Creed, you can say amen to the broader church universal. So this summer, what I was trying to say is we walk through a new um, sermon series that's all about our church. I'd like to confess our faith which is the Apostles' Creed um, that connects us to the broader church. So would you join me in saying this? If you can say amen to this statement, I invite you to uh, say that out loud with me if you can read it here. <laughs> it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer and we'll get started. And I'll get you your shoe. Father, we're so grateful for all it took to get us here. And we're grateful for a church in which we can laugh at the insanity of the things that tend to happen. We also believe that because you love us and you're with us and you know us, that you know there are times when you're smiling too. And we're just here to gather together and to gather in your presence, and uh, we are so grateful for your nearness to us. Lord, we thank you that you inhabit the praise of your people. We're grateful that you draw near to us, even if we feel like we are far. So if that is us, feeling like we're far, Lord, I pray that we would be awake to how close you actually are, to how much you actually love us, to how much you have forgiven us, to how far it is the east is from the west, and how you seek to be with us, to teach us, and to lead us into this life together. So we're so thankful. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for each person you've brought here and for our time this evening. Please bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We invite you to turn to John chapter 1. And as you're turning to John chapter 1, I want to tell you that my life in ministry has been about largely 
just learning to ask the right questions. Learning to ask the right questions. Now, if you're not in ministry, that's okay, because I think you can probably relate to the kinds of questions I was asking. See, I grew up, and when I was starting to discern what God had called me to do, or how He's made me to be, and what that would look like as my vocation, or as my work, as a pastor, or you as a teacher, or you in business, or you in uh, working with your hands, or you working in the family, you begin to ask questions when you're starting to discern those things like this. God what have you called me to do? Okay? God, what have you called me to do? This is the question that plagues the senior in high school, and it plagued me throughout most of my ministry. You saw me faking my way through an electric guitar here. I used to play in crummy garage bands, which meant I started to play in crummy church bands. So I said, God, what have you called me to do? Well, you probably called me to be a music minister right? Because I want to serve you. Then later on, I began to see that I really love to be with people, to sit with people, to hear from people. I, help, I like to, to ask questions and walk with them. So I thought, well, maybe I should be like a pastor that's more kind of with people or groups. So God, what have you called me to do? Have you called me to do this? Or have you called me to do recovery ministry? Because I was doing that. I could go on and on because I was asking, I think, the wrong question. Now, it's a good question to ask, God, what have you called me to do? But I think it's the wrong question, watch, because I got it out of order. I think I've learned that there's a question that God wants us to ask before the what do I do question. And that is, God, who do you want me to be? See, I think we get really messed up. And I think our culture gets really messed up. When we begin to ask God, what do you want me to do? Or what do you want me to do? Before we ask God, who do you want me to be? We start to define ourselves by what we do. We start to get frustrated when we can't do what we want to do. We start to get frustrated when what we were called to do, all of a sudden we get laid off and we can't do what we felt called to do. And we got to go flip hamburgers. It's not a bad question. It's just the wrong question to ask first. You with me? So I think the question that I had to learn was, God, who do you want me to be? Because I think that throughout the Scriptures, God cares more and more about who we are inside, where our heart is, well before we go out and work externally. We've been asking these kinds of questions, learning to ask these kind of questions, uh, your pastors and leaders in this church. And we spent a time with Bob Hyatt, who is in the Ecclesia Network and pastors a church in Portland, and he helped us frame it like this. A lot of times, even in church, not just our life, we get so wrapped up in what he called container questions, outside questions. Not only, God, what do you want me as an individual to do, but we can take that into our church and say, God, what should we do as a church to feel good and churchy, right? You see this in churches, and you see this in our culture. Well, let's just get out and do a bunch of stuff, right? Let's go and just give people part-time jobs and volunteering. Let's give programs for kids. Let's just get them all through this process, and let's go and do, 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 do. And then you burn out trying because you never ask the first question, which is, God, who do you what? Want me to be? We need to begin to ask these questions as a church. The first question that doesn't have to do so much with the container, but very much to do with the contents. 
I want to confess to you the reason I'm talking about all these questions is when I became a pastor in this church, I was only asking container questions. We need to go to El Paso. We need to go to Russia. We need to go and do this. And those things are good and there's life there. But I think God with a smile on his face has brought me back to this place to say, yeah, but man, have you ever thought about the people of God providence together? And are you praying and asking the question, who is providence called to be? Because we could move into this place and go and do. But the first question is, okay, who are we as a church? So these are these questions that I want to explore in this series, Our Church. It's less about a definition and theology of the church. It's more about taking our threads. Tonight we're going to look at a Jesus church. Next week we're going to look at a believing church, a belonging ch- uh, then a belonging church, a blessing church, a praying church, a worshiping church, and a welcoming church. You got that? Awesome. It's about taking these threads and asking the question, in all of this, God, who have you called us to be in this new season of life together? And then when we ask that question, the next question then is, God, how are we called to be your people together? That's the do question. You with me? Only when we start to dream and scheme and say, who have you called us to be? Can we then say now, how are we called to sit up, stand up, and be and do as God's people together? You with me? These are the questions I'm interested in, in this series this summer. Now, we start tonight with a Jesus church because our church starts with Jesus. It's all about Jesus And we're called to see Him and follow Him. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in this place. Y'all say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You sound drunk. What are you doing drinking on a Saturday afternoon coming to church? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We're all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's where we start tonight. I hope you're in John 1. And I want to define what a church is may be or may look like, and you'll see that that is all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You see here? This is our stab. This is what we looked at last summer in our Anabaptist core convictions. And so just by way of reminder, this is how we've talked about what a church is in in, Providence. The church is the community of followers of Christ who are the body of Christ and the visible witness of Christ to the world. Everybody say, Christ, Christ, Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. We start with Jesus. We're all about Jesus. Let's look at John 1 and think about who we are called to be as a church and how we're called to be God's people together. And let's look at Jesus. I really just want to look at one verse. And it's the climax of John's beautiful prologue to his beautiful gospel. And let's look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son. Who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. This is the climax to a beautiful prologue in John's gospel. That talks about the word. And he talks about the word who is life. In him is life. 
He talks about this word and life as light, light to all mankind. And this sounds really good and beautiful and spiritual. Oh, the word. That's like philosophy and reason. The word, something that God, this other spiritual being, has spoken. Ooh, beautiful. This would have sounded really beautiful to the first people who would have heard John's gospel in the Greco-Roman world. Ooh, this spiritual word, yes. But this climax comes, and what does it say the word does? The word became what? Flesh. Wait a minute. That is not beautiful. Y'all seen my flesh? Woo! This was a surprise. The climax to John's gospel and where we're starting tonight as we look at Jesus, 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 the Word who is life, who is light, who is Jesus, who is what God has spoken, who is God and was with God, became yucky, ordinary flesh. This is a huge surprise because He's so ordinary now. We see also that um, in the message translation, I love this so much, what Eugene Peterson says when he thinks about the ordinary surprise of the Word becoming flesh. He says, the Word became flesh and blood, and watch, and moved into the neighborhood. It wasn't just surprise, the Word, the Logos, wisdom, all this beautiful, eternal, pre-existing Word becoming flesh. It was that when He became flesh, He moved into the neighborhood. He moved into where we live. The unseen God, the unseen Word can now be seen because He put on flesh and blood. This is a surprise and this is a great mystery. The unseen God is now seen and the God who is far off and ooh, spiritual and other has become incredibly each other, us, human, right here. The God who is seen as far is now near. And the word that John uses here, when the word who became flesh, he, what else did he do? Made his what? Does yours say? What? Dwelling? He made his dwelling with us. He moved into the neighborhood, not just in flesh, but he came to be where we are. The word John used there is a word for another weird word called tabernacle. John, if he was writing in and we could understand him, he would have said the Word became flesh and blood and tabernacled with us. He tabernacled with us. What then is the tabernacle? Put your finger in John, and with one finger in John, take the other hand and put on your history cap. Then with your foot, grab your Bible and turn to Exodus for a crash course on God's people and His dwelling. Why don't we start in Exodus 24. And as you're starting there and turning there, I want to tell you a crash course of what this tabernacle is all about and why John is so keen on using not just this ooh spiritual Greco-Roman language with the Word and Logos and all this, um, He's, he's also going to use it in really Jewish and earthy ways. The word tabernacled with us. You with me? Before we get to our place in Exodus, I want to tell you about God's people. God's people for centuries were Israel. 
And God's people Israel became Israel after an amazing thing that God did. And you know it, you've seen the movie. He says, let my people go is what Moses says. And they go across the Red Sea and God delivers them, right? Yes, shake your heads, yes. He delivered them, and what it looks like is He delivered them out of the water and into the place where there is no water, and it's the desert. And they say, man, this is not so great. I don't like this. Even when we walked through the water, it was dry, man. This sucks. They start to grumble. But if you look in places like Exodus 19, God frames it and begins to speak to these people who he's called out of slavery. And he says beautiful things like, I have delivered you out of Egypt on wings like eagles and I have brought you to myself. So he didn't just bring them to the desert. God says, I'm actually bringing you to myself. So you then have a people who are in the wilderness and then they make camp after a few weeks at a place famously called what? Mount Sinai, Gold Star. You just sound about like a Sunday school crowd too, Sinai. It's hot in here, okay? And y'all are saying, why am I giving all the Exodus history? Keep your thinking caps on, your history caps. She's rolling. Let's do this. They come and they camp at Mount Sinai. Then what happens is God says, I've brought you to myself to be my people and live my way. Then you see in Exodus 20, the famous Ten Commandments. They're camped at the mountain and it says that God's glory, hold on to that, God's glory settled on the mountain like a thick, dark cloud. This was no word becoming flesh. This is glory that is resting in a terrifying thick darkness. And only Moses goes and he's told how to be God's people and live God's way. Kind of like who are we called to be and then what are we called to do. Are you with me and you see where I'm headed? So that's Exodus 20. They're given a covenant, an agreement. And then what happens in Exodus 24, which I told you to look at. Are you with me? In Exodus 24, that covenant is confirmed. Let's read verse 15 to... uh, Do we have that? We should have had that. My bad. I'll read it. Y'all have Bibles? There's Bibles in front of you. Man, I was on a roll. Exodus 24, let's look at verse... 15 through 18. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. You with me? Verse 17. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You there? The covenant is there. It's, about to, it's been confirmed, and there's glory. Then God is going to tell him about something brand new for God's people. Skip just down in your Bibles. It's not on the screen either. In Exodus chapter 25, and look with me in verse 8. Then... Have them make a sanctuary for me, that is God, Yahweh, and I will, what does yours say? Dwell among them. Make this, what does yours say? 
tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Then what follows in the next few chapters, Exodus 25 to 27, is that pattern that I will show you. But God says to these people, who have I called you to be? My people. What have I called you to do? Live in this way. Now, I want you to make me a tabernacle. I want to make a space, a tent of meeting in which you can go and see me. But even more importantly, I don't want to stay up on this mountain in a scary black cloud. I want to move into the neighborhood and live in your little tent. And so he tells them, it should have the ark that reminds you that this law and this way that I've called you to be goes with you. Here's this lampstand. Here's this tent. It should be made like this. It should be framed like this. And he's going to tell them, this is what I want it to look like. But more importantly, I want to move in with you. But he's moving into a place, stay with me, that's ordinary. If you read through Exodus 25 to 27, the tent is made of goat hair. Hello? Is that a beautiful fine linen? No, for a people in the desert. And certainly not for a God who would probably, if you thought, would be more content to stay lofty and high in a cloud. No, I want you to make it of stone and of wood and of ordinary things. Some things are extraordinary and nice and gold, but really goat hair? Are you serious? I want to move in in a place that's ordinary and also mobile. God wants to dwell with His people, but He also wants to, watch, lead His people. He's not just going to move in, he's going to move in in a radical way, which brings us to Exodus 40. All of a sudden, the ordinary does not seem so ordinary. You there in Exodus 40? This one's on the screen. Sorry about that. Let's look at verse 34. Then the cloud that was on the mountain, right? What does it do? Covered the tent of meeting. Now, side note. Earlier, you see that Moses would go to this place called the Tent of Meeting that was outside the camp. The Tent of Meeting becomes synonymous from here on with the tabernacle. That's just extra credit for your Sunday school quiz later. What's important is that the cloud moves off the mountain and covers the Tent of Meeting. And the glory, you see that? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's so cool how even when God made humanity, He took people that the poem says in Genesis from dirt and He breathes life into them. Our little pink and beautiful little babies are breathed into with God's stuff. Life. God is all about taking things that are ordinary and breathing His very extraordinary self and glory into it. This is so crazy. We miss this as humans. Is that God takes the ordinary stuff of me and you and is pleased to dwell with us. And we see fully later that He doesn't just move into the neighborhood. He wants to live and reside in us and conform us more to be like Him. 
This is incredible. And it's so funny, I'm reminded even tonight, we're not going to have communion. There is a communion mishap. But even when we remember the bread and the wine, we buy it from Costco. And when we gather in worship, and we lift high the name of Jesus, and remember the body that was broken for us, and the blood that was shed for us, the welches and wine and bread that was purchased from Costco becomes infused with something bigger. Even when Toby and Amy pull it out of the bag, there's something bigger going on. God takes the ordinary little us and moves into the neighborhood. He moves in and His glory was pleased to reside with His people. And this people was a nomadic people. Kind of like us. Right? So then in verse 36, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Did you see how God moved into the neighborhood, infusing the ordinary with the extraordinary, and then He leads us where He wants us to go. He doesn't leave us, He leads us. Us. God moved into the neighborhood, and what's really neat is when the tabernacle was resident and sitting and the cloud remained, where did all the people stay? All the people camped around it. So you have the tabernacle, the place where God wanted to move in and dwell, and you had all of God's people surrounding the tent, gathering around the tent. So what about us? Fast forward, take your history caps off. What can we learn from what John has to say about a people, watch, gathered around God's dwelling place? You see where I'm headed? The Word became flesh and tabernacled with us, with humanity. Look back now at John 1.14. God moved into humanity's neighborhood. There was no thunder and lightning when the Word became flesh. There was a baby who made himself nothing. There's an artist called Audrey Assad that I've come to really enjoy. And one of the songs that's been a gift to me is a song called Humble. And this song, Humble, she says a line that just really struck me and caught me and got me to my core. And she sings, not too proud to wear our skin, to know this weary world we're in. God was not content to simply remain as a cloud. God became enfleshed. He didn't appear to be man, but actually he was a hollowed out shell filled with spirit helium God that made him float. God actually became man. Stop. Don't over-theologize it. The Son of God, the ever-existing God who was with God and is God, was a baby. A baby that cried could omnipotent power be held in the hand of a 
genuine baby. That will keep you up tonight. But this is a great mystery that the eternal God becomes ordinary human. He tabernacled with us to know us, to know this weary world, to not count the experience of cloud and fear and all of this thing. He came in the most lovely and precious way. The Word became flesh and the Word grew up so He could touch people with human flesh. He could know what it's like to walk in the earth He created. He could know even what it looked like paradoxically, crazily in scriptures, he learned obedience through the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured pain of the cross, as the writer of Hebrews says. This is not some over-spiritualized mystery. God the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and walked around the neighborhood with smiles on his face and tears in his eyes and eating with people and talking with people people like you and I do, so that when we gather around Him, we can learn firsthand how it looks to speak and touch and act and eat and love and walk together. God became enfleshed. So hear me, when a church becomes more about the Word that's not enfleshed, when we become a people who says, here's the Word, go read it. And not a word like the word in flesh to live and move and eat and drink and touch and love and serve. We need to be a people that follows the lead of the word who become flesh and be enfleshed in neighborhoods and not just say, you're wrong, you're wrong, here's why word, go read it, I'm out. We need to be a people who move into the neighborhood and we need to be a people who can actually touch and act and relate like Jesus by what? Being with Jesus. I think of the first tabernacle with all the people gathered around it. Then I think about the Word become flesh, talking and acting and speaking. And I begin to think yesterday in a time of prayer, thinking about this great mystery, and I thought about camping. I thought about camping because what's the best part of camping? Don't say fishing, you're wrong. You're a liar. S'mores, yes. And why are s'mores the best part of camping? Because s'mores are not just tasty and awesome. It's because s'mores are made by fire. And what happens is you gather around the fire and the fire is the place because you can't turn on HGTV where you share stories and you share the warmth and sometimes you just share the wonder of staring at fire. You know you do it. When you go camping, you just get zoned out and drool starts hanging down your mouth. You're just staring at the fire. I think about God's people gathered around the Word, tabernacled among us, and I begin to think about this next part of our verse as the climax of John's great mystery of the Word becoming flesh. And I think about that fire because he says, we've seen His glory. Do you imagine sitting around a fire, not just staring at the fire, seeing it, just being zoned out by it. Can you, in your mind's eye, maybe sometime this week, this is what's helped me. When I've gotten a little like crazy and anxious, it sounds crazy, don't make fun of me. I've actually imagined sitting around a campfire, not just staring at the fire, but seeing Jesus across the fire. It sounds weird and gnarly, 
But I want to behold Jesus. Because what John's after here with this seeing is not uh, just we have seen Jesus like face to face. Though they did. You still with me? Who's the we that John's talking about? Saint John, the apostle, the beloved disciple. And all his merry friends, yes? And all those who aren't writing in the Scriptures, Mary Magdalene, they saw Him, they interacted with Him. They literally sat around a fire with Jesus. But when I think about our church, the kind of seeing that we can do is a beholding. It's a deep seeing. It's a deep knowing. Because when your only relationship to the Word is on a page here, it's simply knowledge. It's not knowing. What God delights to do is to take His words, written scriptures, and get them into your bones where you see Jesus in such a way where you don't just know about Him, but you know Him. And that's what makes all the difference. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son. We read our Bibles to know Jesus in this church. We look at the Scriptures and we see that the Word who was God and with God um, is the fullest revelation of God. Look at verse 18 in John 1 if you still got your Bibles open. No one has ever seen God. Nobody's ever looked at Him. Not even Moses. Don't think Moses. If you go back and look at that passage in Exodus that we just skipped through, God said, you can't see me. Anyone who sees me, like sitting across a fire, would die. But I'll let my glory pass by you. And you can see the backside of my glory. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. To jump back to 14, we've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And that next phrase, who came from the Father, or maybe yours says, of the Father. It's like Father, like Son. If you have seen Jesus, beheld Jesus, if you know Jesus, not just know about Him, guess what? Surprise, bonus, you know what God is like. Hebrews 1 says, God has spoken in many times and in many ways through prophecies in the Scriptures, but in these last days, God has spoken Son. And He continues on in Hebrews 1 to say, He is the image and exact representation of God. If you have seen Jesus, beheld Jesus, you've seen God. Paul in Colossians, at the early part of his letter, he says, the image of the invisible God who has not been seen has dwelt fully, was pleased to dwell fully, poured out all into the ordinary fleshed word. You have seen God if you've seen Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of deity, was pleased to dwell in Him. This is why we read our Bibles and our words through the lens of the perfect revelation of Jesus. We look at places that say, love your enemies, and we don't just leapfrog them and go back to a place where it seems like it's okay to kill your enemies. We say, they just didn't have the fullest picture yet. We do. His name is Jesus. And watch, you could have touched Him. 
And today he's still alive. You can still see him if you're awake to him and beholding him. We've seen his glory. Glory like father, like son of the one of a kind son. And we need to gather around and really try to see A church gathered around Jesus, reading the word of God through the lens of Jesus and seeing deeper and deeper the love God has shown to us in Jesus. That the Spirit testifies to us that we would see Him for who He really is. And who He really is, watch, is full, not just of God, but what? Two things. Grace and truth. The good news is that the kind of God that Jesus revealed to the world is not full of anger and apathy. He is not full of bitterness and frustration. Or, meh, I'm just whatever. I'm going to change my mind here, there, and whatever. He is not full of over bullying and control. So to the degree that your God is full of anything other than love, grace, truth, I'm afraid you have a distorted image of God. To the degree that God, Abba, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, does not look like Jesus, I'm afraid you have a distorted image of God. Because the God that I am telling you about, that I have seen in my heart of hearts, is a God who is love. And if He is anything, it originates from a place of love. All the threads of justice, strength, and power originate from a core center place of love. And if you want to know what it looks like, you want to see it, look at Jesus. He is full of grace and truth. This is good news for the world. We thought you were angry, God. And then I need to see Jesus picking the chin up from a woman caught in adultery, naked, beaten, dragged, bloody, a shred away from being stoned to death. I need to see the God who looks like Jesus who says, Daughter, Where are they who condemn you? Neither do I go and sin no more. And yet so many of us in this church, when we look at Jesus, who we think Jesus is, we feel condemned. And I think His heart breaks over that. I spent too many years trying to work for Jesus. Trying to earn what He's given to me freely. I felt condemned and he says, son, it's why every single month, I was telling Jared and Carla yesterday when we went out for a time of solitude and silence, every month I tell them, when I go, it's just an effort to get all my wiggles out and just run around and get all my antsies, anxious out and hear that you are my beloved son whom I love with you I'm well pleased. The Father said that about Jesus, and if I'm in Jesus, He can say that about me. And that looks like the Jesus I've beheld. And you will continue to simply know a lot of words about the Word until you let the Word made flesh deeply into that place 
and let him say, beloved, son, daughter. And then you begin to see, oh, that's the Abba that Jesus was talking about. That's daddy. And then I think about Emma in the back seat of the car and she says, listen to me. I said, I'm talking to mommy. Listen to me, daddy, listen to me. And then I begin to think about when I'm tearing down the road and I'm frustrated and I'm saying, listen to me. He says, I am, I'm Abba. And I think about those places where I say, man, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I, I hate this. I keep going back. He says, you're good enough. Because I let the word made flesh deep into this place and everything since that moment has been a big bang because God is love and that is good news. And we need to be a church gathered around that God who became flesh and we need to camp out around there, around the fire and we need to look deeply and behold the Son who is full of grace, who is full of truth. The divine, yes, reality, this is it, look no further. Jesus is full and He wants to fill us. So the thing is, as we look to Him and we begin to let Him shape who we're called to be, then we say, okay, now what? Now when the tabernacle gets up, how do we go and do? Well, I think about as we speak and act and follow Jesus, it's not just about what we do, but how we do it. Is it full of grace and full of truth? Is it full of the kinds of fruit of the Spirit that is being brought up in us? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's not just that we do a good thing if we turn our back and say, I hate that person. I can't believe I keep doing this. I hate coming up here to do sound because Adam's just going to bark orders at me and all this. I hate setting up for communion because we spill it. Love you, Kara. <laughs> it's how we do what we do that matters. So we don't just let Jesus define us who we are. He lets us set the tone as we go out and do. So let's close with the answers, some answers, venturing to guess at these questions we started with. Who are we called to be? We're a church gathered around Jesus. And watch, following Him together. I promise you, I am not 50 feet down the path saying, come on guys, this is great, let's go. We follow Him together. And sometimes that means running with the fastest and walking with the slowest. But you do it together. So the, the, to the degree that you cycle out or run too far or run back, either we're coming with you or you need to maybe gather back because you're a little too far off the reservation. And if you're in those places where you are not hearing that voice calling you beloved, well, maybe you need to come back to the togetherness of the church. And then we proclaim His gracious reign to the world. We're called to be a church gathered around Jesus, following Jesus together, proclaiming Jesus' reign to the world. There it is again. Say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You got it? The second question we began our time with tonight. How then are we called to be God's people together? I see a clue here in John 1.14. That's beholding and following. 
beholding Jesus, letting him form us and shape us, and then getting up like that tabernacle of old and the Jesus of today and following him so tight on his heels that we're covered in the dust he's kicking up from the road. And it's lather, rinse, repeat. Get back and behold him, and then get up and follow him. Sit down and behold him, get up and follow him. Sit down and behold him, get up and follow him. Y'all are so tired of this, it's what I preach every stinking week. Dallas Willard said it best, you guys know what it is. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Discipleship is what? Being with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to be like Jesus. Are you serious? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is divine, y'all. Not all this crazy stuff I'm saying, but Jesus, 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 that's awesome. We are all about Jesus. We are a church that is all about Jesus. It starts with Jesus. It's going to always be about Jesus. That's just who we are. We're called to be a Jesus church gathered around Him, beholding Him and following. Are you guys up for it? We need to pray and we need to stick tight to one another and tight to Jesus. And we're going to continue to ask these two questions in the weeks ahead by His grace. And we're going to see all of these answers starting and ending with Jesus. So that's where we started tonight. You good? Let us pray and let us sing and come to Jesus. Maybe you need to sit. Maybe you need to stand. Maybe in a moment you need to just not sing. You need to get somewhere and you need to pray. And you need to say, Lord, I think the reason why I'm struggling to hear these voices or this word or to see you is maybe because I just, um, well, I need to turn everything else down. Maybe I don't need you to speak and Shout, maybe I need to turn it down. And I pray in this moment that Abba, you would speak deeply to our people in the deep places of their heart. And I pray that you would make Jesus known to them as Paul prays. I pray that they would let enough light in the cracks of their heart So that they would see you for who you really are. And that is love. Full of grace and truth. Lord, would we be a people so obsessed with you. And if we're not obsessed with you, Lord, would we be desperate for you. To seek you. To savor you. And then Lord, by your power, having beheld you, would we follow you through thick and thin through the valley of the shadow and the streams we know that you're with us give us grace and strength to follow and come to you in the name of jesus the head of the church amen